Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 149 of Manage the Wild. I'm Nick Madsen. Today, we're going to continue on that conversation we started with Landon Schofield, range and wildlife biologist with the East Foundation, as we talk about his PhD in carbon sequestration. Carbon sequestration is an important research avenue that people are starting to delve into because of all the different aspects of it. One, it potentially helps in the reduction of carbon in the air, so those greenhouse gases, climate change will be affected. Also, there's an emerging market. There's some big name players, some of the billionaires and some of those hedge fund groups that are starting to look into carbon sequestration as a way for tax benefits. This is a growing and emerging market. It's important to talk about this upcoming research. And at the very end, I ask Landon the pivotal point of this whole discussion. How does it relate to wildlife management? And he gives a phenomenal answer. So sit back, relax, enjoy. Thanks. All right, I left this question off just because I knew it pertained to your doctorate, but the, it's uh, in. You even wrote a, a a section of it. I'm assuming the in your annual report, but it's the carbon question. Yeah. Like when I started talking to you about carbon sequestration, it was something that I still don't understand. But can you? Talk about your doctorate, what you're doing, and how it's going to go into the future. Yeah, into the future. Wow, that's heavy. I mean, well, carbon. <laughs> so I'm talking about carbon sequestration, and right now exactly. it's it's an emerging market. Absolutely. That that there are people, and this blows my mind, but like people like Bill Gates are buying up the property, and it has nothing mm -hmm. to do with necessarily owning land but it's more about carbon sequestration and i'm like what the heck carbon is... credits yeah yeah exactly. what is carbon credits what is carbon sequestration yeah that's that's a great question <laughs> it's going to sound like a complete 180 from what we've just been talking about and it right? is like, but it's not and and i and i ask myself a lot like like i feel like i'm drinking from a fire hose in a lot of regards with this research because it's it's very different from from what i've you know been exposed to and, and have worked so intimately with it's much more range science heavy. It's it, it, soil heavy for that matter, right? And so it's one of those it's one of those areas that um, that we kind of collectively identified as an area that needed a little further investigation. You know, it it is like you mentioned, it is a, a new and exciting emerging market. It's an opportunity for landowners to diversify revenue streams and to also take a, a an active role in in mitigating you know the perception of ag in terms of mitigating climate risk, right? And rising um, carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions for that matter. You know, agriculture gets a, gets a bad rap a lot of the times for their contributions to that, but this is an opportunity to, to take an active role in, in mitigating that, right? Or a perceived role. And so as it relates specifically to carbon sequestration, and, and I guess the, the motivation for that was the emerging opportunity for buying and selling of carbon credits. So being compensated in essence for the removal of atmospheric carbon and storing it into the soil, which like you said, is already a natural occurring process through carbon sequestration, through photosynthesis for that matter, right? That's something we learned back in junior high and, and high school and elementary school perhaps. And so some, of us, some of us probably slept. Well, I think I slept through it, but I'm definitely relearning. <laughs> yeah, that's why you got the fire hose turned on now. 
Yeah, that's why the fire hose is turned on. But essentially through that natural process, as a result of proper land stewardship, how can landowners take advantage of that? But also, you know, what are those areas of risk associated with that? As with any new opportunity, you know, it's, there's always areas of risk, even as great as it sounds, it's also important to understand the limitations of it as well. And that's kind of where we're focusing a lot of our questions. And so we're, we're interested in terms of, well, I guess kind of historically, you know, biologists, landowners, land stewards, whatever capacity you may find yourself in, you know, there's a long history and track record of being able to monitor and really understand and quantify the responses of different land management practices above the ground, right? We know if we overgraze this area, this is what's going to happen. We know if we burn this area at the wrong time in the wrong conditions, this is what's going to happen. You know, there's consequences of those types of actions. So the above ground type results, you know, we, we have a lot of work and a lot of data on those types of areas. But what's less, less known, um, but is getting a lot of momentum is what occurs below the ground. And specifically as it relates to this would be from a carbon storage and a carbon accumulation standpoint, what are we doing as a result of these management actions above the ground to the carbon below, which is of huge importance to understand if a landowner is to go into a carbon contract that may potentially limit their ability to manage the land above, right? So they don't wanna jeopardize their long-term ability to be profitable and productive, but they also don't want to jeopardize and put themselves in a position to where they're not meeting the terms of, of the carbon contract credit agreement, whatever it, it may be called. And so we're really interested in terms of the management effects of the management effects on carbon accumulation. We're also interested in our ability to be able to detect and measure carbon at scale over time. And so that might seem like a pretty straightforward type thing, right? Like being able to measure something at scale over time. Um, but the structure of these types of carbon contracts is that being able to measure the change. So that's what you're getting compensated for, right? Is that change in carbon, that increase, if you will. And so if we can't accurately detect that change and measure it, you know, there's, there's, there, there'd be concerned of being able to tie an actual kind of dollar amount, dollar and cents amount, because at the end of the day, that's what we're talking about, right? Dollars and cents. Um, and that's that's what's in play here. And so, yeah, our research is obviously gonna be taking, take, is taking place down here in South Texas, but we hope that what we learned will be applicable to this sort of system, you know, nationwide, statewide, nationwide, to help in large part better inform landowners when um, considering entering into this type of opportunity, but also informing the structure on how these, these types of markets are um, regulated is not the word, but monitored, right? And, and decided and, and structured long-term. And so it's, it's exciting. Um, it's also scary and hard. And that's just the, that's just the great part about it. Um, and yeah, like I said, I, I feel like I'm, drinking from a fire hose on, on most days, but it's just another, and just another way that I'm getting stretched and stretched in a good way for sure. Yeah. How did you come across this as a topic? Yeah. Um, so it's, I don't know if it, I wouldn't say that I personally came across it as something that could potentially be a PhD type 
um, research endeavor, but it was something that collectively the foundation identified as an opportunity for us to take an active role in, in informing those types of decisions as it relates to, to carbon markets. And so again, um, because of the, the, uh, I guess just the, the layout and the structure of the ranches, it really, you know, we were, we were uniquely situated employees to be able to tackle this type of question. You know, we have a known, known management type action, um, you know, documented across our lands for, for a long, long time. And so that alone is, is a huge starting point. And just knowing how the land's been managed and, and altered over time, as if you're trying to get at these types of change questions, right? Um, but also it overlays really nice and great with a lot of our ongoing and existing type research projects from our grazing projects to our fire projects. You know, those things were already in place. This is just another example of how we can not piggyback, but just continue to put another piece of the puzzle in terms of telling that story overall. So fascinating. Uh, completely over my head. How far Mine along? Too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How far along the process are you? Uh, we're a couple of years in. Uh, we've got the majority of our field work done. So our soil samples have been, been pulled um, for the most part analyzed. And so a lot of it now is the, uh, the analytical side and modeling and all that good stuff so a few probably a couple year or two left for sure so the challenge with the probably modeling it is there's currently not any are there any models built to help you analyze this data are you having to come up and create your own models there's been a there's there's been there's been a good bit of work recently as it relates to carbon and, and measuring carbon and detecting carbon and playing with you know all that variability because it's 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 messy like and there's there's just a lot of things in play it's not as not as simple as if i burn this area i can expect this amount of carbon over time right or if i don't graze this area if i defer this area for x number of years i can expect this number of accumulation it's so context driven that it's it makes it a little tricky and so yeah we're we're <laughs> i had made the comment to my major professor just like like it's a mess. Like I'm, I'm in a room and I've got market representatives that are not in agreement with the scientists and no one's, and the landowners aren't in agreement with, with these folks. And, you know, it's, 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 there's lots of different parties in it. And he made the comment, you know what, we're, we're seeing the sausage being made. And, uh, <laughs> you know, beautiful. in a lot of, in a lot of ways, you know, we get to see the finest, the, I mean, the, the final casings come out right but in this case in this in this example we're definitely in the trenches of it right now and and that's what makes it exciting that's what makes it worthwhile um it also makes it difficult and that's good though like we're excited to to be tackling it and and to to do our part yeah things are not always straightforward can you talk about why it's not straightforward if you were to burn this area <laughs> versus another area why wouldn't the outcome be the same what what factors are you seeing yeah yeah so i, I know mean, i don't want you to talk about place. the final project obviously because you're you're not yeah, there you're still absolutely. analyzing but i kind of want to you talked about the messy things i kind of want to help people understand why this is messy and difficult yeah so i mean we know that you know applying um prescribed fire to a landscape, um, you know, reinvigorates vegetative production, right? If done appropriately, which in my mind, you know, could potentially reinvigorate carbon accumulation as a result of that plant just taken off, you know, and hitting the booster. Um, 
And we're interested in seeing if that's the case. Uh, we also know that in terms of soil carbon, there's so much in play. There's climatic variables in play. There's soil variables in play from texture to things like that. Um, yeah, I've also alluded to, you know, just the management of the land as well. Like there's just, there's lots of things in place. Uh, even species, you know, plant species behave differently from that, from that aspect. And so trying to connect those dots, trying to, to get it in a place that can be applied at scale and over time um, is, is going to be a challenge. It's going to be a, a significant challenge. And yeah, it's the it's the sausage making, yeah. man. <laughs> We're in it. So if you like the area that I currently live in, it's very clay. It's a clay loam. It's very there's so much clay. It holds so much moisture, and in certain areas, a sandy loam would also affect differently. So you're having challenges in because it's in the areas. I'm looking at your sample locations in your areas. It it every sample almost seems to be in a different type of soil. So not only are you going to have to figure out what type of soil that you're trying to do carbon sequestration and calculate that, but then you're going to have to figure out the different clays that are involved. But there is no section that is just going to be like, oh, we've got a hundred acres of sandy loam. Absolutely. And so it's, it's a matter of, and so that's another little component that we're interested in is, okay, you know, like, random stratified sampling. So stratifying the landscape to these manageable, I guess for lack of a better term, manageable type attributes that we can detect and that we know about that can then, you know, kind of be extrapolated over the landscape as a result. And so better, very better understanding the very variability of these soil carbon measures, even within those same strata is, uh, it's proving to be very, very interesting. So even though you would assume Area A and Area B, say they're in the same ecosite, similar soil characteristics, things like that. You know, there's still variation between those two points that um, is really interesting. And it makes it difficult when you then want to begin to expand that out because that's only going to get wider and wider, if that makes sense. Yeah, because the terrain is going to be different. Even though it's and in the so, same ecosite, you could have one on yeah, a rolling hill yeah. that's facing north and one that's facing south and it would... Yeah. And so the context for each of those points is going to be different, but then how do you, yeah. And so even I'm sorry, like, I shouldn't laugh, but dude, this seems challenging. No, you're making me feel better. <laughs> what in the world? Yeah. If it's going to no, be facing but, Northeast, South or West, it's going to be different, even if it's the same soil. Yeah. And you know, we don't do a whole lot of, you know, we don't have to deal with a whole lot of slope um, down here, but areas do. It's another, it's just another, that would be an example of another strata or, or attribute that you would then take into consideration for sure. Yeah. And then the steepness of the slope. Cause if you get weather, then how much wind is in there? Cause if you're burning, how much is going to stay? How much is going to get blown off the plants? How much are after they burn? How much are, how much burns up and how much is left? All right. When you're going through this, uh, talked about the average total carbon for like a loamy sand is going to be 5.89. That's metric tons per acre. How do they calculate that type of thing? Yeah. So you have to, so you get your percent carbon value, which essentially is done in a lab, right? Yeah. How do they, can you talk about, I just don't understand that process. Yeah. So there's lots, there's several different ways that they do it. Um, dry combustion is one where essentially it's, 
it's ignited. And uh, but in order to get the actual quantity of CO2, um, you have to also take a measure. It's called bulk density. So it's basically a known a known weight, a known mass to a unit of volume. Um, and so with that, you're then able to calculate the the actual mass uh, or the actual amount of of carbon within a, a given area or a sample per se. So here's the one interesting thing that I see is there's so much variability in how much, because if you're, I'm looking at your eco sites and if your loamy sand is 5.89, the range mm -hmm. is between 2.5 and 13. Uh huh. There's like a huge amount of range. And then in your red sand, sandy loam, it's, again, it's three to nine. So you have a huge amount of range. And something that makes it even even more fun <laughs> with that particular article that I think you're referencing is, you know, those those points were taken relatively close to each other. You know, they were taken within five five acre um, grazing exposures, and I think we did like two or three points per grazing exposure. Um, and so, so you would think, yeah, you know, those are going to be relatively similar, and. Uh, <laughs> And it's just, it's just one of those things that it's important to understand. I mean, I guess it's one of the limitations, you know, that we don't quite have a great handle on how measuring this, how, how measuring soil carbon would translate into a tradable commodity. Yeah. And that's, and that's the, that's the, that's kind of the intersection point right now. And that's that emerging market. Yeah. Part, is yeah. how do you calculate all this? Yeah. And I was, you know, I was in a room with representatives of, of those markets and those, those, those groups that are, you know, the ones that are buying and selling the credits, you know, selling them to corporations, buying them from landowners. And, you know, they said flat out, like, we're not waiting for the science to figure it out. And, and it's like, okay, <laughs> here we go, you know, type deal. And so, but, and so, and so like kind of looking into the, the long term of it is, First off, we want to ensure that what we're claiming is being done. So what we're claiming in terms of carbon reduction, atmospheric carbon reduction is actually occurring, right? That's important for the integrity of, of the role of, of ag in, in, in taking a part in, in climate mitigation, right? And climate change and things like that. You know, we want to make sure that, that what we're doing is actually taking place. Um, and we also want to make sure that it's, it's taking place in a way that um, that landowners are able to benefit from it as well, from and to further be incentivized to to keep doing what they're doing, essentially, and doing right by the land. Yeah. Now I have a question, and this just popped into my mind, and maybe I'm not understanding correctly. Our whole goal is carbon sequestration, pulling carbon out of the air, right? and to, or out of the plants and whatever and putting it into the soil correct uh reduction in atmosphere yeah. yeah so if you have a fire and you're using prescribed fires isn't that releasing co2 absolutely yeah so you have a mixture of is there and this is just me thinking out loud to make sure i understand but are you pulling more back into the ground than you're releasing that's what I would hypothesize that as a result of like reinvigorating that plant growth, because, you know, a plant goes through a cycle as well, right? It's going to turn over and release that same amount of, instead of it, instead of that release of, of CO2 and carbon, 
instantaneously, essentially, as a result of fire, like it's going to take place over time as a result of that natural turnover and oxidation and all that fun stuff. And so all we're doing is expediting that process. I would then hypothesize that as a result of burning, you know, we know the responses of plants, you know, tends to be renewed, like invigorated type growth, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a rapid type thing. And it's also opens up the area for additional plant growth. And so, you know, you would think that as a result of that, it would, you know, not only re-accumulate what was released, but continue to accumulate as well um, over, over, over time, you know, until it turns over again. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly what we're, what we're shooting at. Okay. Try to provide some clarity. Absolutely. It leads my, to my next question. Are, do you think that if it, it turns out that it's sequestering more carbon than it's releasing, do you think that prescribed fires will be an exciting thing to talk about again amongst <laughs> across the United States and other places where people are so concerned about wildfires? Do you think that if it proves that it's actually pulling more carbon back into the soils, that this will all of a sudden become an acceptable method again? Because we know a lot of the landscapes across the West are being managed to stop fires when fires were natural. Is that a possibility? Mm-hmm. Or is that too? Yeah, I think, I think I'll answer it like this. I think what, because even prescribed fire and the application of prescribed fire is very context dependent and it's important to keep it in context. And I think the responses of soil carbon as a result of prescribed fire is also context heavy. And so, yes, it may shed some, some, some much needed good PR on, on, on prescribed fire and burning. Um, but it's also, I think it's important to just remember that it's just one of the tools in the toolbox in order to meet the objective as well. And so it's not going to be the, the cure-all, but it could potentially have its place in terms of helping to mitigate and, and support this type of area as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, uh, everything's. So that's a, that's a very kind of non-answer. No, no, it's, <laughs> it's good. Uh, I think you answered it appropriate. It's not, it's not a cure all. And I yeah. think it's important when people are saying we need to burn more, or let things burn more, that it's not a cure all, but depending on certain situations that it is very good for the landscape. Mm-hmm. Yep. It has its place as with anything. Right. And it, it also has its place where it's not, it's not the best, the best approach. Absolutely. All right. Here's a, here's a question for you. Cause we're talking about wildlife management. How does carbon sequestration play into the role of wildlife management? I have an idea in my mind, but I'm curious if it's the same as yours. Yeah. And I guess just kind of some direct connections that I can see that we're actually kind of working on a little bit would just be kind of brush management. Um, Obviously, appropriate brush management can be species dependent and and species specific and and important depending on the objective, right? You don't want a a landscape barren of brush, but you also don't want, you know, monocultures of brush either. It all depends on the context and and the species and the objective at hand. And so as it relates to carbon, there isn't a lot of work, if any, as it relates to brush and uh, soil carbon and the, re- and the effects of brush management on soil carbon. And so it comes down to that. There's also be some, some areas there with wetland mitigation. Um, that's a, that'd be a, a real key player in terms of soil carbon as well, which has direct effects um, and impacts on, on wildlife species. Uh, which one were you thinking of? No, that's kind of how I was thinking of how by 
we're keeping landscapes open mm-hmm. by because we're now promoting carbon sequestration. You need landscapes that are that are open and not built upon because we have so much residential yeah. and commercial building and industrial that's going on right now. Yeah, that you're yeah. now promoting. Not a, not a lot of photosynthesis happening on it. No, no, or (laughs) asphalt shingles, you know, it's just, it's just difficult. And so this is promoting, like you said, you're managing a landscape, but you're also promoting it to be open for wildlife to move through. And I think, yeah, as it, as it relates kind of the carbon, the carbon question, it, it's another area of diversifying revenue potentially for landowners that if they are further incentivized to keep a landscape open and undeveloped and unfragmented, you know, and under production in other ways, that that has huge benefits um, and dividends across the board. Yeah, not just ecologically, but in wildlife wise, but just, you know, quality of life wise, like we all depend on those ecological services that these open lands provide. And if we can further ensure that they remain as they are, you know, to the best that we can and and the folks that are on them and depend on them continue to do right by them, you know, that's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, that was one of my final questions. What are some potential co-benefits of carbon sequestration? And you just just nailed it. You know, soil carbon, carbon in the soil, you know, that's that's a direct indicator of soil productivity, which (laughs) we're all built on, yeah. Everything that we need is hinged on that. So they're often called carbon sinks. I guess this is a way, uh, different ways that the environment stores carbon. One of them is in the soil. Is there any others that you've looked at? So there'd be like, you know, there'd be like timber production. You know, that carbon is is stored and occupied in that timber stand and, and things like that. So above ground. Um, and, but, you know, the one that, the one that we're studying directly is, is soil carbon. How did you come up with soil carbon? Like, is that is that just because you don't have a whole lot of trees and you were solely focused, or did you look at all the different ways that it's stored and say this is the best one that would work for the East Foundation? Um, not so much that it works the best for the East Foundation. You know, obviously we're we're really well suited to ask those types of questions, but you take just the the percentage of of rangelands across the globe globally. Okay. So rangelands as a whole is a is a huge player and a huge um, attributor to just the actual land covering globally, and especially here in the United States. So just that amount of resource makes it a, an obvious candidate to to better understand its role in the carbon cycle. Okay. Is uh, besides uh, um, fires, prescribed fires, or wildfires, is there any other potential ways of improving carbon sequestration yeah proper grazing management um cattle cattle are great for this when utilized appropriately you know just from from their grazing but also to the disturbance that they do and and also the the fertilization that they naturally do as well you know so proper grazing management um is is a big one and and there's been a lot of work um obviously there's been a lot of work with soil carbon in, in agricultural like row crop type settings. So there's been a lot of, a lot of promise in showing the, the, the significance of having residual cover year round on a, on a, a field, um, you know, low till, low disturbance type approaches as well. And so there's, there's lots of different areas where it's been looked at. Um, you know, we, we obviously are within a, a semi-arid rangeland type system. And so that's kind of where, where we're focusing, but 
again, it's it's very context driven, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, absolutely. That's so interesting. How <laughs> how do you see this overall go into? Because uh, what you're doing is largely looking at how you can use uh, as another commodity. But how does this carbon sequestration? How does this overall fit into the context of climate change? I know a lot of people are talking about climate change and some of the challenges it's presenting in different cases. I mean, it's all very context-driven, but how does this overall theme of carbon sequestration play into the mitigation of climate change? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a direct player and in, in, it's a mechanism essentially in place that removes atmospheric carbon and stores it in, in the soil, which is which is good for, for soil productivity and everything else, but it also, you know, reduces that, that amount that's up in the atmosphere. And so that's a direct player um, removing those, that, that one greenhouse gas is just one example of being able to mitigate the effects of, of increasing greenhouse gases. But it's also, it's also important that, that these landowners and land stewards have an opportunity to, to take an active role in that as well and not, and, and not, you know, constantly be the, be the perceived bad guy. Yeah. Um, because, you know, while, whether you agree or disagree with that or not, um, that perception, you know, it's important that they also take an active role in, in the solution and being, a, and being allowed to be able to take a, an active role and having a seat at that table in that solution as well. And so, you know, and, and folks are obviously more motivated to do that if, if they're incentivized in one way or another. And so if it's something that they can effectively and efficiently incorporate into what they're already doing, you know, it's a win-win. It's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, thank you. I appreciate it sitting down. This has been awesome. I'm grateful that uh, I had the chance to sit down with Landon to be able to talk about all these different topics from wildlife management, turkey research in Louisiana to Nilgai studies in Texas and then to finish up with this latest podcast talking about carbon sequestration and how we can do our part to help the earth. I mean, every time somebody does a new project, works on a new study, we learn more information, and this is just another one. Being able to pull that carbon out of the air that we're concerned about, those greenhouse gases, that CO2 buildup from all the emissions and all the different things that we're doing on, and being able to find new methods to to help the earth that we all live on is such a key component. And to bring these players in who, like he said, have largely been looked at as the bad guy. They're the ones who are growing the beef. And, and right now, it, depending on what circles you run in, that's not very popular. And, and also the popular thing at where I'm at right now, where I live, is for these landowners, these dairymen, these farmers and ranchers to go off and sell for development. And so keeping these spaces open and being able to find value in them to help them stay open is important. So again, grateful that we were able to sit down with Landon. At the end of that conversation, when he was talking, it just kind of ended. I knew I was supposed to respond, but I was so lost in what he had just said that it was awkward. So as I get better, hopefully I won't be as awkward. But I think it was important what he was talking about, bringing all the different players in. It's a win-win for everyone if we can find ways to help the earth help itself. All right, you guys, if you like today's episode, go ahead and subscribe. 
all the different platforms you're listening to the podcast on, go ahead and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Find out all the different people we're interviewing, all the different topics we're covering. Hope you guys have a great day. Stay wild.